0: This morning we're continuing through the book of John, we're in John chapter 9, and uh, at the beginning of John's gospel, in John chapter 1, he, he says, speaking of Jesus, um, that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, as we just sang, Emmanuel. And he says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God. And he is in the closest relationship with the Father He has made him known. And so we're looking at John chapter 9 this morning, and we're looking at a story from the life of Jesus. And John's telling us that this story is making known what God is like. This tells us the truth of what God is actually like. And so I encourage you to turn there now, John chapter 9. I mean, it's a, a long section. Uh, if you've been tracking with this uh, series, we've kind of been going a few verses at a time. And it may have felt like this is going to take years and years to get through this whole book. And now we're going to do some fast-forwarding here. We're going to go through all of John chapter 9 uh, in, this, in this morning. So I know it's long, but I think it's worthwhile reading Scripture together. And so we're going to read this together, starting in verse 1. While I'm in this world, I am the light of the world. And after saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed, and he came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't the same man who used to sit and beg? And some claimed that it was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open? They asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Salome and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. And they brought they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received the sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one they say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, his parents, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or how his eyes were opened, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out to the synagogue. That that is why his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, why did, he go, "'Why did he do to you? "'How did he open your eyes?' He answered, "'I have told you already, and you did not listen. "'Why do you want to hear it again? "'Do you want to become his disciples too?' Then they hurled insults at him and said, "'You are, his, you are this fellow's disciple. "'We are disciples of Moses. "'We know that God spoke to Moses, "'but as for this fellow, "'we don't even know where he comes from.' The man answered, "'Now that is remarkable.' You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person and who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? "'Who is he, sir?' the man asked. "'Tell me so that I may believe in him.' Jesus said, "'You have now seen him. "'In fact, he is the one speaking with you.' Then the man said, "'Lord, I believe,' and he worshipped him. Jesus said, "'For judgment I have come into this world, "'so that the blind will see, and those who, who see will become blind.' Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, "'What? Are we blind too?' Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. This is God's word. Let me just pray as we get into this. Father, we come to you acknowledging our limited sight, and we come to you um, asking that you would open our eyes wider to the truth of who you are, of who we are, and, and what you're calling us to this morning. So God, would you help us? Would you... Soften our hearts. Would you give us fresh ears to hear the things that you have to speak to us this morning? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So a number of years ago, I had the opportunity to go to India a few times. And uh, one of the first things we did there was, or one of the things we did the first time I went there was go to the Taj Mahal. Taj Mahal is located in the town of Agra. It's about a four-hour train ride south of Delhi. And uh, to be honest, I wasn't very excited about going to it. It seemed to me like one of these things that's just kind of famous for, uh, not just kind of because it's famous, I wasn't super excited about actually seeing it, other than being able to say that I've seen something famous. And um, so we went there, and I, I remember very clearly the moment when I finally got up close to it, and that whole perspective changed. The Taj Mahal, I don't know if anyone has ever been there, anyone else in this room has ever been there, but it is remarkable. It is enormous. It's way bigger than you think it is. The amount of detail that they've put into every square inch of that whole building is incredible. The amount of time and effort it would have taken for them to chisel into the white marble, to create, like, they took a solid piece of marble, chiseled out this gorgeous... Um, weaving, and all this detail, and, they, and it's covered in this inlaid jewels and colored stones. It's incredible. And then you think of the history of when this was created and the limitations of technology and the story behind why it was done. It was, it was something that I was really... I was sort of expecting what happens when you go to Niagara Falls sometimes with people that are out of town and they think, this is Niagara Falls, this is the famous thing, and they see Clifton Hill and it's so disappointing I was sort of expecting that, but my experience was totally different, and now when I see the Taj Mahal, when I think about it, it, it I, my experience of that is very different than it was prior, because I had this firsthand encounter with this thing, and it changed my perspective. And in John 20, this is near the end of John's gospel, John's, again, telling us the story of Jesus' life. He says, Jesus did many, many things in his life. He He did many signs. He did many miracles. I've only recorded some of them for you. He did much more than this. But the reason I've recorded these things is so that you may believe that Jesus is who he said he was, that he's the Son of God. And so, just as John wrote this book then, and he's saying, look at this thing and let this change your perspective. He's saying, look at this story now again. And he's even writing these things to us um, in the same way, with the same intention, that we would look at Jesus again. And we've been saying over and over again that John has structured his book in such a way that he has set up different signs and statements about who Jesus said he was. So Jesus makes these I am statements. And then there's discussion and confusion about what he means. And then he does these great signs and miracles. And then there's confusion and debate about what the implications of that are. And so this is the sixth of seven miracles and signs that that John tells us about Jesus' life. And this is one of the longest stories about Jesus' life in the Gospel of John. And so we're going to dig into this and see what is it about Jesus, and therefore what is it about God that John is communicating to us about what he's like. And so I've sort of structured this. There's, there's a few groups of people in this passage I want to look at, and I think each one kind of tells us a, a little something um, and teaches us something. And so the first group I want to look at is the group of the disciples. This is kind of a, this is, I don't think the main point of the passage, but it's here. And so I just want to spend a little bit of time up front looking at this. And the disciples here are, are asking the question about pain and suffering. And they, they're kind of leading the questions along and they say, here's this man, he's born blind. We're going to assume the assumption is there's something that he must have done wrong in order for him to be born this way. And so they ask the question, Why? why is he is it the fault is it his fault or is it the fault of his parents and this is the this is where the conversation starts and the answer here is that Jesus gives dismisses this the assumption behind this question immediately but i think the question of why why is the thing that always accompanies pain and suffering in our lives why it's this persistent why me why that person why now why would god do this and, and the particulars of this question is, why? Why, is he born, why is he born blind? Was it his parents or was it him? And if you're having a tough life, it must mean that you've done something wrong in some way. That's the conclusion. Kind of the logic is you reap what you sow. God's the judge. And he, if you're experiencing bad things, it's because God has determined you've done something bad. Bad circumstances are a result of your bad decisions. This is a thinking that is present in their minds and we might think oh that's archaic there's no way that people think like that and you know i mean there are many major religions today that still believe that but there's actually i would i would argue that that mindset is still present in our thinking still today that that it actually goes quite deep in us that there's something that assumes that if we're experiencing trouble that there's somehow connected to something we've done wrong and that creates a bit of a nagging question of why why and this and this is a huge problem actually because it can kind of create this subtle self-righteousness and i don't think we're consciously deciding oh i'm i'm better than that person but there's something in us i think that says oh they're experiencing this it's it's comforting to think it's because they've done something wrong because then that gives me just a little bit of comfort that because things are going right in my life i'm doing something right and so it can create this incredible amount of self-righteousness and pride. The other problem here is that it's not true to the facts of life. That good people often have very hard lives. And often terrible people live lives of comfort. So it doesn't match reality. And so this is their, this is their thinking and they're bringing this for Jesus. And Jesus rejects this premise completely. He does it here. He says, Neither. And he does this the same thing in Luke chapter 13 when they're asked when a a tower falls on people and they say, what sin did they commit that that this happened to them? And Jesus dismisses it there. He dismisses this idea in Job when the friends are counseling Job and they end up being rebuked because that was their thinking that you must be doing something wrong. Just repent. Jesus rebukes this idea and he offers a different solution. He says... This has happened so that the works of God can be displayed. Now, I I think that this that statement kind of has specific meaning to that specific person in the, in this story, but I think that same thing can be can be said to really anyone. You know, we've we've created a bit of a mess of this world. Bad decisions do have often bad consequences. There is truth. There is a element of truth that we do reap what we sow. But Jesus says that's not necessarily the case. And there's actually something that even when these things happen because of the reality of a broken world, there's something there's something deeper here that he's offering us. He says so that the works of God can be displayed through this. And so that, I know that may not necessarily give immediate comfort to the to that question of why. It doesn't necessarily satisfy it, but it gives a much more profound, eternal reason for the pain and suffering that we can experience in this life. It gives a purpose that is far beyond just the immediacy of this, and then we're gone. He says, this has happened so that the works and the glory of God can be put on display. So he dismisses that. And so, and he kind of moves on to something else that he actually wants to talk about. He says, this is a thing that I'm actually wanting to talk about. He says, the main point of the passage here is spiritual blindness. The idea of spiritual blindness. And it's not just stretching, you know, this story of physical blindness and say, okay, we're going to make this into something spiritual and make it, you know, make a nice little spiritual lesson out of this. No, that's actually where Jesus takes the story. He says, this physical thing that's happened is actually telling us something about the spiritual world. And so the Pharisees, he's accusing of spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness. So what is spiritual blindness? Um, I, I, think, I think we can all agree that spiritual blindness is something very different than physical... Uh, spiritual sight is something very different than physical sight. And there's different t- kinds of ways that we can talk about sight. And we would, we would agree this even when we're talking about uh, using the word sight in, in the English language. We would, we would agree there's different ways that we think about that word. And so one example of this would be... Um, So when I was about 20, I realized uh, that me not working very hard in high school was a bad idea. (laughs) I don't know if if anyone here can relate to that. Me not trying very hard in high school and not getting great grades, it was actually a bad idea and limited me later in life. And I had to catch up and work, work harder to to make up for those mistakes. But when I was in when I was in high school and I was when I was a teenager, I yes, I was told that. Of course I knew that, but I didn't have the wisdom. I didn't have, I couldn't see the implication of that in its fullness. I lacked the wisdom of understanding, and so there was a sense in which my sight, my ability to see the actions, the consequences of my actions was limited, and I didn't really gain that until later in life when I gained this this wisdom, And so there's a lack of wisdom we can talk about when we're saying we're, we're blind in some degree. There's another sense in which we can... We, uh, you can't really see something fully until you have an experience of it. And so I... Uh, again, when I was in India, we had motorcycles and we did a lot of driving around the country on motorcycles. It was just a fantastic experience. And there, they don't really care as much if you wear a helmet or not. And... Um, I have to say, it's really nice driving a motorcycle without a helmet. It just is. It feels really cool. There's a freedom there that you have. That it's just, I don't know if there's a more freeing feeling than just driving a motorcycle without a helmet on. (laughs) However, and this is where I'm gonna correct myself and uh, make you not so concerned, is that when I was there, I also had the experience of seeing, like, close up, someone fall down on a motorcycle and hit their head on the road. And I can still very clearly see that image. I can, I can see it happening. I can see the back, the back tire popped. And then they started spinning. And then it went down. And the people were not wearing helmets. And I can see that so clearly. And that experience of just going through that. Immediately, I'm going to wear a helmet. Because it's so dumb not to wear a helmet. It's so dumb not to wear a helmet. As good as it might feel. The experience brought a new sense of reality. I I realized something. That word realization, it becomes real to you. It becomes real to you. You know, I, I knew it abstractly, but I didn't see it. It wasn't real to me in the same sense. And so you can talk about sight as literally seeing things. But you can also talk about sight as a perception of reality. Of how things actually are. And Jesus talks a lot about the difference between physical and spiritual conditions. He often takes a physical thing and then he he wants us to to understand something spiritual about that thing. And so, for example, Jesus offers us spiritual life. Now we're alive. We're alive right now. The idea of spiritual life is only makes sense if there is a sense in which we are dead. We are spiritually and dead. And so in the same way, he's offering a spiritual sight. And so that only makes sense if there is a sense in which our perception of reality is limited. We're blinded in some way to not see things as they actually are. And he's offering spiritual sight. And so to have life means that we're, in a sense, we're aware. It always means that you have some sense of the environment that, you're, that is around you. To have life means that. So a basic form of life, like a plant, you know, it can't really, can't really detect a whole lot of the, of the environment, but it can in some degree. If you change the temperature in a greenhouse or maybe the gas in the atmosphere, it's going to detect it and react. If you bump that up to a more complex form of life, they can de- like animals, animals can detect more than like a plant, If you are upset, if you express emotion to an animal, it is aware of that. You can yell at it and it understands something is wrong. It perceives the life, the environment around it in a more complex way. And if you think about humans, humans have even more senses than animals. You know, we typically think of humans only having five senses, but everyone, as you explore this topic, would agree there's actually a lot more senses that we have than just five senses. An example of this would be a sense of morality. That we can we can see an act, and there's, we can sense, we can determine that there's something wrong about that act. We have a, a moral sense, that we can feel conviction, we can see and understand that there's this mor- moral world that we can perceive in some way. And so an animal doesn't have this same sense. You know, an animal can... You can get mad at an animal for peeing on your carpet and it, it sense you're upset, but there's no sense that it has done something wrong. You don't see that sense of morality in the animal kingdom. But yet, it's different for humans. We're aware of things. We can detect the environment around us in a more complex way. And so, you can say this, that every higher form of life is able to sense more of the reality that exists around them. The more complex a form of life is, the more... Of the reality that is around them, they can detect. And so, what does spiritual sight mean? What does it mean? It means the Spirit of God gives us a new sense to detect the reality, the truth of how things actually are around us. That our eyes are opened to a reality that has actually always been there, but now we can see it. And so I think this topic could be explored in a lot more depth. But I would just say this morning that it at least means this. That when we have spiritual sight, we can see the reality of sin and the reality of grace in ways that we never did before. When you have spiritual sight, you can see the reality of sin and the reality of grace in ways that you've never seen before. And you can see this perfectly in the Pharisees, actually. These two elements they're completely missing. Listen to them as they're as they're engaging with uh, with the blind man. You no, know, they're they're so proud. He says it says then they hurled insult at, at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. They're calling him a liar. He says, This is just what happened to me. I, I don't know. This is what happened to me. I'm just telling you the truth. And they're just all over him. They're like basically calling him an idiot. You're a fool. We know better than you. They have such spiritual pride. You know, you're a sinner. We're not sinners. The only reason you're telling us the lie right now is because you're a sinner. But we're not, so we can understand that. We're disciples of Moses. We're way more righteous than this fellow Jesus. You know, how dare you lecture us? about what is right and wrong. That's the, that's the where the Pharisees are coming from. But when the Holy Spirit comes and opens our eyes to our own sin, it's like it's, there's a new perception to our sin that we never really had before. Now, I think, you, I think everyone can sort of generally agree that there's something wrong with them. You know, even if you grew up in the church, you hear this message, you can, you can generally, yes, you would agree, okay, I'm not perfect, I get it. I do make mistakes, I understand that, I agree. But it can often not go to the depth in which is in line with what reality actually is. But when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes, our sin becomes real to us in a new way. You begin to see the depth of your sin. You begin to see the corruption, even of your good, what seems to be your good actions, the corruption of your motives. You know, you know, you can think, yeah, I know, I'm, I'm not that, like, I do bad things and think bad things sometimes. But I still do good things. Like I, and we kind of justify our actions and you still say, yeah, look at all these good things that I'm doing. Look at all these bad things that I could have done but didn't do. When the Spirit gives us eyes to see our own sin, even the corruption of our motives for the good things that we do becomes real to us. You know, there's so many different reasons why you could do a good thing. And it be totally dis- you could totally disregard God in the midst of that. You can do it because, you know, you're, you're self-righteous. You can do a good thing because you wanted to control other people. You can do it because you're trying to feel better about yourself. You know, there's all different reasons why you can do something that's good, and it'd be totally missing the point. And when you become, when you have spiritual eyes, and you become aware of the, the your reality of your own sin, there's a, There's a sense in which you understand and see yourself in the the way that we actually are. You also begin to see that you're not as in control of your life as you think you are. I think we tend to think, yeah, I've, I've got this. I can handle it. But the reality is we are driven by fear. We are driven by lust. We're needy in so many ways. We're not in control of our emotions as much as we think we are. There is things going on under the surface of our will that make us do things that we don't even want to do. In a moment, we can react and respond to someone in a way that we didn't even want to react or respond in that way because in some way, there's something going on beneath us that's, in a sense, overtaking us. And when you become... When you have spiritual sight, you begin to see that. You begin to, have, you begin to recognize that and be honest with it. And you can come to the conclusion, I can't do life on my own. I can't handle this on my own. I need outside help here. And these two things, this idea of releasing, your, releasing this idea of independence, becoming dependent on an outside help, becoming aware of the depth of the reality of the sin in your life, it's called conviction of sin. And it's different than just agreeing that you're not perfect. There is a realization because you can now finally see yourself as you really are. Later in John 16, Jesus says, The Holy Spirit will come and convict the world concerning sin. That's the role of the Spirit. Convict the world concerning sin. But the, only thing, the other thing that always accompanies spiritual sight and the reality of sin is the beauty of grace the beauty of grace. And in many ways, these two things are always accompanied together. I think we can experience false guilt. I think that we can make ourselves feel bad about things, but the spiritual sight that God offers us is one that at the same time gives us a profound sense of our guilt, but at at the exact same time offers us the beauty of grace. And again, I think it's very possible to grow up in the church and hear these things and generally agree, yes, I'm saved I understand that Jesus died for me, but you've never really had that encounter with with grace that is a changing force in your life. You've seen the pictures of the Taj Mahal, but you've never actually been there and experienced the difference it makes when you understand what it is. We'll come back to that idea in a second. But this is absolutely critical to understand that we are blind and that the Spirit gives us sight And so Jesus offers two little things here about, little insights about spiritual blindness. Right at the end, he's telling us two things about spiritual blindness. The first is a kind of reversal. He essentially says this, that blindness equals sight, and sight equals blindness. Obviously he doesn't mean this literally, he's saying something else. And he's saying that this, there is a sense in which there's sight in the world that we can have, that the world calls good things that can actually make us blind to the reality that exists around us. And so, often, you can be a brilliant, well-read, you can, have, you can be incredibly successful socially, you know, you can be financially secure, you can have a great career, and it's often those people that, in the world's eyes, are most advantaged, are actually the most disadvantaged when it comes to the gospel, because the gospel says you have to recognize your blindness in order to see sight, to have sight. The gospel says you're saved by grace. Grace is a recognition that you can't, that it's nothing of your own effort that you're bringing to the table. And so, to be able to, to be able to accept grace is, a, is a have to have a willingness to let go and say I'm blind. And Jesus says here that if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. And so there's things in our life that are... They're they're not good or bad in and of themselves. But they can become the things that actually stop us from seeing our need for grace. So Jesus says, because you knew you were blind, then you'd be able to see. But because you claim you see, your guilt remains. And so really the deepest form of blindness is to be blind to your own blindness. The deepest form of blindness is to be blind to your own blindness. And so I, I guess I would just ask you this morning, can you, is there any sense in which this is resonating with you? Can, you? can you see your own blindness? Or is that idea totally foreign to you? Can you see your own blindness? Because the only thing that's really uncurable is an unwillingness to go to the doctor because of your sight problems. And so the last person we want to look at in conclusion here is the man born blind. He teaches us what it means to be healed. The man's physical blindness was healed by this bizarre miracle, but Jesus is actually addressing this man's spiritual blindness as well. And we know that because of the second part of his response here. Jesus comes back to him and he says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He says, Who is he? Jesus says, I am he. And then it says... That he believed and worshipped him. The man believed and worshipped Jesus. Now, for a Jewish person to worship a a man, a human being, is, is probably the least likely person in all of history to be able to actually worship a human being because of their worldview and theology. They would... They would be the least, least likely people to be able to do this. And yet this man, in this moment, recognizes something about who Jesus is. And it causes him to worship him. He sees him and he says, this is God. Did he understand the complexity of the Trinity and how Jesus fit into all that? I doubt it. But he looked at Jesus and he said, this is, this is God I'm looking at. And he, and he worshipped him. There's no other reason why he would have done that. And so to conclude here, you know, it's only when you begin to worship in the same way that God will become real to you. It's only when you see Him as He actually is that the beauty of what He offers us and the joy that He can bring to our life becomes real. When we make God the most important thing in our life, you know, His love for you will become the measure of your worth. He is the thing that will most satisfy you. The degree to which you give God your heart. To the degree that you'll find your sight clearing up. And you'll be able to see yourself. You'll be able to see and sense the reality that is around you. And you'll be able to ultimately see God. And so how do we get there? How do we experience that same cure? I think it it only happens. You can't just say, oh heart, get there. You can't just will yourself to that place. It's only when you see Jesus in the same way that your heart will actually lead you the way that you need to go. And so I'd ask you again this morning to see him on the cross. See him in his sacrifice. See his justice. See his compassion on you. See his care for you. See his patience with you. See his kindness towards you. See his love for you. See his pursuit of you. See his mercy on you. See his grace on you. See him on the cross for you. Where all of these things are expressed in their fullest form. When we fix our eyes upon Jesus, as the hymn says, and we look full in his wonderful face, then the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Let's pray.